Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing my good friend and one of my favorite members of Congress. That's actually a very true story. Delegate Stacy Plaskett from the United States Virgin Islands. But before we get to her, I want to talk about Haiti for a second because it's not getting enough attention. In case you've missed it, in the last few weeks, Haiti has seen their president assassinated, followed by protest and instability, followed by a massive earthquake a few days ago. And as of this taping, hurricanes may follow. Haiti's history is well known. They were the first independent country in the Caribbean in Latin America and the second democracy in the Western Hemisphere and the first Black-led country to beat back its colonial powers in the French back in 1804. Literally, since 1804, the country has paid the price for its independence, first with having to pay the French reparations in 1825, having to pay $21 billion to France to preserve its independence. Centuries of strife, interference from the West, and internal corruption follow. Add to this its location in Hurricane Alley, the Caribbean, and on a major earthquake fault line, you have the perfect storm for political, historical, and geological headwinds that would keep any country from prospering. So it begs the question of what needs to happen. I guess that's a question that the international community needs to answer. But I think it starts with France paying back that $21 billion that crippled Haiti in the first place. The international community should absolutely force France's hand as they have played a foundational role in Haiti's challenges. The United States isn't much better given their interference with Haiti's affairs for years. Just like there was a Marshall Plan for the European countries we devastated, there needs to be one for Haiti, led by France and the United States. Let's see who has the courage to lead on what is arguably the most compelling global case for reparations there is next to American descendants of slaves. And that's that on that. Now on to our show with my friend, Delegate Stacy Plaskett. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So today we have a very special show. I have a good friend of mine who actually happens to be in the United States Congress from the United States Virgin Islands. She is one of the most effective members of Congress. And I think that needs to be said because, well, that just needs to be said. So uh, what's going on, Congresswoman? How are you doing, Stacey Plaskett? I'm good. I'm good. Um, How could I not be well? I'm in the U.S. Virgin Islands right now. Right? I can tell I, that didn't look like a congressional office. So it looks <laughs> it just seems more lively. You got to pop a color back there. Yeah, it's my um, my district office on my home island on St. Croix. So it's a sunny day when I finish with you, Bakari. I just have to take my daughter for an afternoon swim at the beach. Oh, my you know, goodness. Something I have to do. I'm jealous. I'm uh, Yeah, that's not that's not even fair. So, look, we, we start each one of our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. And so before we get into the meat of the show, talk to us about your career before you ran for Congress. You were a uh-huh. prosecutor. You had a corporate legal career and then you ran for office. Talk about those career stops along the way. 
Yeah. So basically I have ADD, right? Because <laughs> I changed jobs a lot. Um, yeah, I started out from law school. Interestingly, in law school, I'd actually thought about going into international and national security. Hmm. And uh, one of my professors uh, during like one of the lectures was like, you know what? Look, talk to me after. And when I came up to him, he was like, you know, you really should consider being a prosecutor. It happened to be Jamie Raskin. Oh, my goodness. That was your professor? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That was my law school professor. I was like one of his protege students. He just started teaching and we used to always give him a lot of grief because I went to law school at night. Uh, So, you know, students are sometimes older. So some of us were older than him as our law school professor. But yeah, so I went um, and I was a prosecutor in the Bronx, which I have to tell you was invaluable in terms of preparation, Uh, just having so many cases ready for trial at all times. New York City, it's 24 hour court. So sometimes you're in night court, Mm. you know, you got weekends, beeper duty, et cetera. And, but got burned out. I was a narcotics prosecutor and, you know, it got to be a strain when every time you look over to the other table, it looks like your son or your nephew or your cousin. Sometimes it was my cousin uh, over on the other side. And I went with a group that was just breaking off from McKinsey and Company and we're going into financial, uh, the finance sector called Mitchell Madison Group. This was right before the dot-com burst. And so we worked with startup companies doing corporate investigations, due diligence on mergers and acquisitions for them, how to streamline business, those kinds of things. Um, And because I did a lot of financial investigation, when I moved to D.C., I went to the House Ethics Committee. I was hired by Lamar Smith, and Rob Portman. and Your whole life has been full circle, but go ahead. <laughs> worked with <laughs> Rob Portman on house ethics. Uh, he really took a real interest in me. And after 9-11, I was picked up by the Justice Department in the Bush administration and worked for, I have to tell you, some of the most incredible public servants, uh, Larry Thompson, an African-American man from uh, originally from Missouri, but it was in Georgia and he was the deputy attorney general and then stayed with James Comey after he became the DAG, the deputy attorney general, Mm -hmm. then went into the private sector. And uh, in 2004, I went to my boss, Tony Welters at United Health Group and told him that, you know, I've just had it with this whole corporate rat race you know, I feel like I have enough experience now. I'm at a point in my life where I can try something absolutely different. I'm going to move to my family's home of the Virgin Islands. And he was like, what? (laughs) How did you, like, you must've been thinking about this your entire career. Could that, that probably sounded decently random as hell to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) He actually started laughing. He was like, okay, you want to raise. I I know. I, I get it. Let's work out a bonus difference. (laughs) I was like, no, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. But, you know, Bakari, I know you've you've probably had this instilled in you that, you know, my parents were from the Virgin Islands. Our family goes back here from Mm. the the 1700s. And it was kind of like, what's the point of everything that you've done if it doesn't help your people, if it doesn't help your community? 
if you can't give back, if you can't be a part of uplifting your home. And so I decided to come down to the Virgin Islands and I was in private practice and then worked with the governor and diligently trying to write a book as all frustrated lawyers do. Um, but I've only finished well, four get, chapters in an outline. Never I, I mean, what do you, I mean, fun. let's get the, I mean, it, it's never going to be per, I already, I already know you're probably the worst legal writer because you edit, edit, edit. It's probably just perfect when it comes out, but you got to let this book go. Let, let's get it done and let it go. Yeah, that's what I've, that's what I've been told. I'm gonna um, have my, my publisher's going to call you today. Don't even worry about it. You're going to be like, who is this from New York calling me? Bakari told me to call you. Talk about the Virgin Islands for a minute, because I don't think enough people know about the Virgin Islands. Well, you uh, know, I think the most interesting thing about us is that we've been owned by seven nations, seven sovereigns, including um, the longest ownership was Denmark. And one of the shortest is the Knights of Malta, if you can believe that, uh, owned us at one time. But most people were interested in us because our geographic um, position for strategic purposes. Uh, you know, we are really at the most eastern, most southern point of the United States. We sit at the mouth of the Caribbean. So we're kind of a gateway into the Caribbean basin, um, which was really drove slave trade here really drove a lot of transshipment of goods through the Virgin Islands to elsewhere. It's the reason that we had, up until several years ago, the largest oil refinery in the Western Hemisphere. Um, I, didn't even, I didn't even know that. From, yeah, With crude coming from Venezuela up to the United States and um, others, we have one of the deepest ports. So, you know, China and others are always interested in utilizing us. And it also means, unfortunately, the drug traffickers have taken a keen interest in transporting drugs through the Virgin Islands into the United States and is the cause of a lot of crime in the Virgin Islands because we have right now such a high unemployment rate, um, you know, a tremendous brain drain um, that occurs here. And because our new owner, the government of the United States, doesn't really treat us equitably to allow us to have the economic development that we need. I mean, let's talk about that real quick. So what makes it a territory and why does that matter politically? You know, so many places, most of the United States, except for the 13 colonies, right, were at one point a territory. Correct. And eventually Congress and the federal government decided that we're going to inject enough capital, enough economic incentives into areas so that they can grow to become a state. Um, when the United States purchased offshore territories in war and through strategic war purposes, like Puerto Rico in the Spanish-American War, Guam, Northern Marianas, American Samoa, and the Virgin Islands, from we were purchased from Denmark during World War I, they decided that, you know what, we don't have to inject as much capital, as much support into these areas. And it was actually codified in Supreme Court cases at the turn of the 20th century in what are known as the insular area, uh, the insular cases, um, where the Supreme Court and Supreme Court judges, the same ones who wrote Plessy v. Ferguson, mm. said that the people who live in the territories, Bakari, I love the language, people who live in the territories are savages and alien races 
who cannot understand Anglo-Saxon principles of law. Therefore, for you know, a period of time, they should not be given the same privileges as Americans living in the mainland until such time that they are able to understand. Oh, they, they, but the crazy thing is they still make the same arguments today. It's just a softer tone. Right. Well, what's even more infuriating is that Bush administration Obama administration, Trump administration, and now, dare I say, potentially Biden administration are upholding these cases as we continue to bring Supreme Court cases against uh, and utilizing the insular areas, uh, the insular cases. I mean, it's used to justify why we shouldn't get SSI. Um, why Wait, we you don't get SSI? Vote. You don't get SSI? No, no. So, let, I mean, that's I mean, this is a lot of these questions are rhetorical, but you are dropping <laughs> some some I, I know the answers to most of them. Let me not say they're rhetorical, but you are you are. So why isn't it a state and why isn't it in the same conversations that people are having, say, Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico? Right. I think the reason in the Virgin Islands that we don't have the same conversation that we have with the District of Columbia and with Puerto Rico is one, our size you know, we're 110,000 people. Okay. Um, so we don't have critical mass in terms of being able to inject some political push in that area. We are like Puerto Rico, don't have 3 million people living in Florida or in New York to make those members of Congress and those senators be keenly aware. And we don't have um, the financial resources like a District of Columbia has in terms of budget surpluses and others to be able to expend um, resources on pushing our agenda in the same way. Um, you know, we're kept in this perpetual state, it feels like. And you're a delegate, so explain to people what a, what what a delegate means. And also, you don't have a member of Congress. You don't have a excuse me, a member of the United States Senate. So how do you right. are, how do you advocate for your initiatives for the Virgin Islands in the United States Senate? Uh, it means you work your ass off. <laughs> that means you, like I said at the beginning, like she's actually one of the members that don't just be at the Democratic Club drinking liquor. She's actually out there working. I mean, she may be at the Democratic Club drinking liquor, but she's well, also working. She's like, also. I like drinking my liquor. <laughs> but um, she's also working. Correct. So, uh, you know. One, when I came into the office, I said uh, I didn't want to treat myself the same way other members of the territory had been treating. Therefore, I don't want to sit on the same committees that members from the territories are usually relegated to natural resources. You know, mm -hmm. I'm the only member of the territory that doesn't sit on the natural resources committee. And when people ask me, why don't you want to sit there? I'm like, because we're already all there. They can advocate for us. We only get two committee assignments. Let's spread ourselves out so that we can make sure that our interests are known. As a member of a territory like the District of Columbia, I can vote in committee. I can offer um, bills, co-sponsors, sponsor legislation, debate on the floor. When Democrats are in office, we get to vote on the floor when we rise in committee of the whole. We don't vote on final passage. And when Republicans are in office, they have interpreted the law so that we have no vote on the floor. Even though we're almost equally divided between Republicans and Democrats as members from the territory. You know, we're not monolithic people. We have different <laughs> opinions and <Yes>. ideas, uh, <laughs> ideologies. And so... Um, you know, that's that's where we are. 
presently. Um, but, you know, when you talk about the Senate, we don't have I don't have a senator. So when I sponsor legislation, I've got to cajole and figure out who might have an interest in legislation that I have so that I can have a companion bill on the Senate floor. I learned very quickly that members from the House actually have floor privileges on the Senate. And so I periodically will go on the Senate floor to try and talk with senators that are blocking something or that I need support from. You know, I found unlikely um, supporters in like Rob Portman, who I worked with previous worked for previously or Joe Manchin, if you can believe it who, when he was governor, was good friends with the governor of the Virgin Islands and understand understood our issues of poverty, so will help me out. Or, you know, of course, um, when uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, was a senator going to her, or Cory Booker, Senator Booker, or some others um, to try and help us out. So, you know, I want to get into some issues that are going on right now, mainly and particularly Afghanistan. So, I, you know, you, you can weigh in on your opinion on whether or not you agree with the withdrawal or not. I think that we all understand that things could have been done better on uh, the back end and not only the messaging of it, but also like maybe having a plan to evacuate individuals who helped our service members. But I want to just ask a more formidable question. Where do we go from here in Afghanistan? How, what does the relationship look like with Pakistan? How do we provide any reins to the uh, Taliban government who's now in charge, particularly with their relationship with women. I mean, so what does the future look like? And then maybe at the end, after you give us a very tangible answer, you can talk about the political calculus going forward for the president. Well, you know, I think that economic as well as soft diplomacy is incredibly important for us moving forward. You know, I think things that have been effective in the for the United States have been things like sanctions in the past, have been economic support, um, have been those types of diplomatic tools that I think were used in some instances, but maybe not used sufficiently in places like Afghanistan and others. But I think Afghanistan is always going to be a problem. And it's yes. always going to be a problem because its very existence was created not by the Afghan people. Can I can I ask a question though? Europe. Like, am I thinking about this the right way? If I have to remind folk that Afghan are people, Afghani is currency. That's just a little side note for when y'all out there tweeting. <laughs> but if if it only took a week for the capital of Afghanistan to fall after twenty years of being there, what would another twenty years of us being there have done? I, I don't see any of the trajectory have changed at all, and. Four presidents have fumbled this, for lack of a better term. Right. I mean, what does the Taliban say? You have watches, but we have time. Um, (laughs) It's a hell of a saying. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they were just going to wait us out the same way they waited out Britain, the same way they waited out Russia, and the same way they're going to wait out the next individuals who come there for the resources and for the geographic uh, positioning that the the country of Afghanistan has um, for other powers, China or whomever, 
who's going to move in in the vacuum that's there right now. And, you know, I completely believe that China and some others will be moving in. Uh, I think that we have got to do what's right in terms, as you said, about removing people that are, you know, Ruben Gallego, my classmate. I love Ruben the- Gallego. And one of the dopest members of Con. He's so, he's so cool. And, and he can drink. one of my drinking partners. And I was like, he can drink too. I, just, <laughs> I know. <laughs> we've, we've had fun together, trust me. But he's married now. He's like a new man now. He's like, oh man. Shout out to Ruben Gallego. He's still got, He's still got the little little baby boy that you know yeah. is keeping him grounded. We yes. gotta, and and this this woman, you know, she got she got her thumb on it. She got her thumb <laughs> <Good. on> it. <laughs> but like Ruben Gallego, as well as Seth Moulton, another classmate of mine, have said that listen, cut the bullshit. Let's get everybody out. Put them in Guam, which is welcomed, and other bases, Qatar, other places, and then let's sort out the visas and the other issues that we have there. And I think we're going to see a rapid uptick in the amount of uh, individuals that are going to be moved out of there more timely. But, you know, they're reminiscent. This is reminiscent in some ways to me of Rwanda, right? Rwanda and not Vietnam? Well, Vietnam as well, but more recently Rwanda, where our political calculation was so completely wrong and really did contribute to the almost million people that were killed in Rwanda. Uh, and I think that our intelligence- What about the calculation was wrong? Was it the withdrawal or how we withdrew or- I think it was how we withdrew, right? The timing of the withdrawal, the steps that were taken to do that. How do you get rid of the base? How do you get rid of the airport? I mean, the, the Afghan army was the like, they woke, the Afghan army was like, we woke up and the, the fort was gone. <laughs> they were just right. like, everybody was gone and we just Not gave people, up. Just the whole fort itself, right? Yeah. It, yeah. But, you know, one of the things that happened was you had Mike Pompeo, who has the Taliban heads in Washington, D.C., and he's taking pictures with them or meeting with them. Maybe they weren't in Washington, D.C., giving right. them and the validity. The former president saying he was going to meet with them in Camp David. And that we were going to withdraw so that they were already cutting deals with the Afghan government for, uh, I don't know the word, but whatever it is to allow them to still live, basically. So they were cutting deals. So this is all. So give me the Rwanda, the president of the United States at the time, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, still won reelection. What happens politically with Joe Biden after Afghanistan? I don't think people will. I mean, I think the public is on the side of the withdrawal. I also think people have a short memory. They don't even remember when uh, Donald Trump fired on the Syrian airports, which wasn't much of an offensive yet. It wasn't offensive. People don't, that was a blip on the radar. So I don't know if people will, this will affect the president that much. I think that he has uh, time on his hands in the sense that, you know, the campaign will begin in earnest, say maybe in November or after the Christmas period. So he has time to clean this up. But I think he needs to really project an issue of being able to protect Americans, right? Our protection abroad in places like Afghanistan, getting Americans out, doing what's necessary to keep terrorists out of us, Um, protection on the streets, right? Um, Making sure that crime is down, that individuals feel safe, protection from a virus as the uh, Delta variant kicks up. I think that that's the psychological thing that he's going to have to counter that I'm sure that the Republicans are going to be hammering in. I also think offensively, we've got to swing for the fences with infrastructure. 
and the fact that we are putting money in people's pockets, that we are equalizing what are taxes, you know, the taxes that are paid by corporations, by wealthy individuals to support social services and reduce poverty in this country, as well as to grow and incentivize our economy and continue American innovation. I'm going to get the infrastructure, but I'm going to walk us there kind of slowly. But we don't have much time left, so I'm going to walk us there slowly, but kind of get through it. Uh-huh. Uh, I have to talk about a couple other things before we get there. I just read an article in Politico, this is in your bailiwick, that qualified immunity was no longer on the table. And I haven't had an opportunity to call Tim Scott yet and completely like be like, WTF, my guy, Like, talk to me. What's going on here? So is it possible that we'll have a, and I think you just need to take George Floyd's name off of it if you're not going to have a strong bill, but is it possible we have criminal justice reform going oh, forward? Or is it's it? not a strong bill if it doesn't have qualified immunity. Oh, why, why, if, it, if you don't deal with civil and criminal liability, then I don't think, I mean, I, I don't know what we're doing. Um, we're doing things like creating the national database. We're getting Correct. rid of the chokehold. We're doing getting rid of the no-knock warrants. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing all those other points in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that we wanted to have done. Qualified immunity was related to the civil liability. Correct. I didn't know if they've said anything about the criminal liability and changing the recklessness versus. There was a, there was a conversation recently where Corey, uh, Senator Booker was attempting to leave the standard as is, which Eric Holder says is too damn high, but create new crimes, sexual, sexual assault, et cetera, Mm -hmm. uh, for law enforcement. So, you know, I, I think that without modifications to those two areas, of course, I wish we had a ban on no-knock warrants, or at least no-knock warrants as they do them in the federal government where you can't serve them between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., and a ban of chokeholds. But it was already banned in the case of uh, Daniel Pantaleo and Eric Gardner. I just find the bill not to be as strong, especially with this opportunity, as it should be or could be. Well, I think it's not as strong as we would have originally liked. But I'd rather have a bill than no bill. That's fair. I mean, I, I, I'm with you on getting something because right now nothing is killing us. But right. it's just, it's. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, I've got four sons and, and, a, and, and a black husband, too. So oh my goodness. Look at you batting 1000 over there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got one daughter. You have a daughter? Yes. A 12 year old. Um, I had she's no the idea. Youngest. She's the youngest. And, and she's the, the one that's going to give you fits. Wait, at 12, they start changing. My 16 year old is upstairs. She is starting. She's starting. <laughs> I'm kind of looking at her screw face and telling her, don't <laughs> you, you know, even think about looking at You me. know what she got? She got the same attitude as her mama. So I'm going to just keep moving and I'm going to go <laughs> to the infrastructure bill. Explain to our listeners why it's necessary, and I love the infrastructure bill, but not just the in, the roads and bridges, but also the human infrastructure bill that we're trying yeah. to pass. Talk about why that's important. And I have one more question before we go home. Well, you know, one of the things that I love about this infrastructure plan, the Build Back Better plan that, that Biden has put forward, is that not only does it deal with our roads and bridges and broadband, which is the 21st century infrastructure, it is rail as to what railroads were in the 1800s, <laughs> right? Connecting yes. people and goods and services. Um, but it also takes takes account for the fact that we need childcare, we need support. So so that people can work, so that we can continue innovation. Um, but the thing that really excites me about this is the recognition of wealth creation in people of color in our communities, in Black Amen communities. Amen to that. 
Um, not just in terms of the contracts that are given, but home ownership, trying to break down barriers so that we can compete at an uh, equal playing field by creating equity in this legislation for our communities. I'm on the Ways and Means Committee, um, you know, and we have really been given a charge by uh, Chairman Richie Neal to really ensure that those issues are accounted for so that we don't do things like we did in the GI Bill, right, which was mm. transformative, but only for a certain sector of, of America and making sure that this is happening everywhere else. So that's where we are right now. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, everyone stays in lockstep because <laughs> Nancy um, got her work cut out for her. But if anybody can do it, I say that the most one of the most transformative yes. figures we've had in the history of United States politics has been Nancy Pelosi. She will be remembered as such the further we get away from. Her I think tenure. so. I think so. She's masterful. My last question is about Haiti. Tell us what we can do. Mm. Tell us. What is going on? You know, we see, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you, you, I think the last death toll I saw was 1,900 people. It normally, would, it would normally would be the number one news, you know, uh, cycle in the entire world. And right now mm-hmm. it's barely a blip on the radar. How do we keep mm-hmm. our intention? What should we be asking our legislators to do? When, I'm, when I bump into Jim at, at Hall's Chop House in Columbia, South Carolina, what do I need to be asking Congressman Clyburn to do? And how do we raise awareness everywhere we go about what's going on in Haiti? Well, later today, members of the Congressional Black Caucus are going to be meeting with Samantha Power from USAID to talk with her about what are the resources that the people of Haiti need um, to ensure that we as legislators are making sure that appropriate funding are there and that the oversight is there so that we are, you know, and this is something that I've been saying along with, um, you know, Yvette Clark and I are Mm. co-chairs with Maxine Waters of the Caribbean Caucus. Ayanna Presley and others of the Haiti caucus uh, to say that we have got to work with civil society on the ground and do what they say is the appropriate thing to do in Haiti. Not only are we dealing with um, the earthquake that's there, but listen, less than a month ago, they had the assassination of their president. So there are elections that are um, in play here. Corruption, gang violence is occurring, as well as the human toll, um, not just with the earthquakes and the need to rebuild, but storms that are on their way as well. You know, I'd invite people to go to my um, Facebook page and there are some organizations that are there that have a track record that if you want to give support to Hope for Haiti, Capra Care, Bancosa, um, Partners in Health. Those are great organizations that, that you can give if you want to make financial contributions and just making sure that you call your own elected official and tell them that let's not forget what's happening in Haiti. I mean, we still have um, temporary protective status for individuals who came uh, to the United States from Haiti after the 2010 um, earthquake that devastated that country. And also, Bakari, you know, one of the things that as a member I have told others that we need to do is we need to keep our finger on France as well. Because a lot mm. of the poverty that is in Haiti is based on the fact that after their fight for independence and winning their freedom from slavery, they were, the United States, France, other powers forced them to pay retribution, retribution. To, right to uh, to France, which equates to in today's dollars two hundred and eighty one billion dollars. 
that went to the coffers of France off the backs of the Haitian people that was not paid off until, you know, a couple of decades ago. So France needs to make their financial contribution back to the extraction of human capital as well as financial capital that they've stolen from the Haitian people so that that can no longer be the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. All I have to say is I love you and thank you. Love you and love right. their babies and your wife. Give everybody some It's love. nap time. Don't don't say their name loud because they, they start popping up around nap time. But have fun. I know. We'll see you soon. Thank you. It's okay. been great. It's been great. Thank you. All right. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Before I let you go. Before I let go. Yeah. You know my jam. I wanted to give a shout out to the Las Vegas Raiders organization for their announcement that in order to attend a Raiders game this year, every spectator will have to show proof they've gotten a COVID-19 vaccine. Anyone who hasn't been vaccinated can still enter, but only after they get a shot at Allegiant Stadium. So it's either be vaccinated before you get to the game or after you get to the game. I like that. As a sports fan that misses live sports, I want the comfort of knowing that I don't put my family's life at risk by going to a game. And while I know selfish assholes who don't want to be vaccinated, don't care, you've got countless people who work at stadiums who don't want their need to make a living to be a death sentence either. Hopefully more stadiums and other live venues follow suit. We all want to get back to normal. I want to get back to watching my Gamecock football. But with the low vaccination rates we have across the country, getting to herd immunity requires that we take measures like these to force people to do the right thing. And I'm here for it. And that's that on that. We'll see you guys all on Monday.